Hey, how's your week been, Tyler? Um, it's been good. It's been very, very busy. Uh, but we're doing good. Um, we're doing good. Sent out a lot of invoices this week, which is always a good week for me. What about you? How are you doing? My uh, my week's been pretty busy. I'm just back to back to back thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I've I've been doing stuff all day, like since I got up, uh, had a class, and then I had a couple meetings for Sash, and I'm here. But uh, been looking forward to this all day. Yeah, man. What are we going to talk about? Uh, I wanted to mention just like real briefly an article that I read earlier this week. Um, this guy who's talking okay. about it was uh, velocity dampening institutions versus okay. velocity accelerating institutions. And he was just talking about certain institutions can either create positive feedback loops or negative feedback loops. And the reason it kind of connected to our conversation from last week about diversity and bureaucracy was he mentioned how bureaucracy is a velocity dampening institution. So it, it creates stability by kind of catching and dampening uh, possible um, feed positive feedback loops. Like I'm thinking about things like, um, you know, the game stock <laughs> memes, meme stocks that, right. uh, that kind of how blew crazy out of control. Been. Yeah. Right. That, I mean, the, the bureaucracy, the system, um, of the you know Securities and Exchange Commission is kind of what dampened that positive feedback loop. I mean, that's what Robinhood got caught on was the SEC, this sort of lumbering bureaucratic institution that is meant to kind of control the potential chaos of the market where there are feed- feedback loops interacting with each other. Um, and so bureaucracy is that velocity dampening institution, which I think makes sense why you would need an ever increasing velocity dampening institution in a more and more diverse society, because you have this greater possibility for um, velocity accelerating institutions to start to kick off these feedback loops. Um, yeah. yeah. And just so you know, the, when, when you were first bringing this up before we started the episode, it was kind of confusing because in my mind, whenever I hear the words like, uh, like feedback loops and positive or negative feedback loops, right? I always think positive feedback loops are like, I think of it psychologically, right? You want to get stuck in like positive feedback loops, right? Generally. But in this case, you're not meaning like everything that's happening in a positive feedback loop is good, right? You're not making a moral indictment against for or against the feedback loop. You're merely talking about what is actually happening, like the economy within the loop. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, a positive feedback loop is really just one where the, uh, the loop amplifies the effect of its inputs, whereas a negative right. feedback loop, it dampens the effects of the inputs. So, right. Um, and this is the case of like Elon Musk, for example, creating a positive feedback loop for Dogecoin. Yeah, right? exactly. I mean, like m- memes are a great example of positive feedback loops, kind of like quote unquote going viral is a positive feedback loop where the, the hype creates more hype and it kind of becomes its own uh it becomes its own living breathing thing that is beyond the control of any single one individual um and so bureaucracy oftentimes focuses or it it serves as a system that can well in some cases it can protect us against really bad positive feedback loops is that correct yeah absolutely i mean that's sort of what that's kind of how the story goes about you know around the game stock meme that robin hood's like hey we we had to do this because we couldn't afford to put up the money with the Security Exchange Commission. And the Security Exchanges Commission exists because 
they need to control the potential volatility of stocks and they have to make sure that everybody gets their money at the end of the day and that kind of thing. Um, and that's the story is that bureaucracy needs to exist because there's chaos and bureaucracy provides that base level of stability that people can rely on. Um, and again, like, like I was sort of saying in the last episode that in a highly diverse society that there are, there's more instability, both in terms of cultural norms, um, the way that systems operate, the way the different community needs in, uh, interact, there's just a greater complexity in general. So you need more of those stabilizing institutions like bureaucracy to kind of negotiate those needs um, to reduce that instability so that people can function from day to day. Right. Uh, it, it sounds like with with the more diverse a society gets, the more complex your bureaucracy, and this goes back to exactly what we were talking about last week, right? The more complex your bureaucracy gets, or the more com- the more di- sorry, the more diverse your society gets, the more complex your bureaucracies also need to get in order to deal with the heightened risk of the diverse society, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder. I, I'm I'm wondering how uh, you know, like a sense of economic risk, what works into this idea of feedback loops, especially as we're talking about Dogecoin, right, and the ways in which a community can kind of like disrupt an entire industry. I think especially what we saw with. Uh, the GameStop or GameStock is like really radical. I don't think I've ever seen something like that happen in my lifetime before, right? And I think that it presents this like a, a really great danger for how small iterant communities can disrupt the grander community as a whole, right? Like these sub communities can kind of pose a real threat to systems of power or even just, you know, greater communities above them that kind of enclose them. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think what's what's really fun about the GameStop stock example, GameStop example, boy, getting mixed up. The GameStop example is that in a way, these retail investors basically showed the financial institution up by kind of revealing the fraud of the whole thing. I mean, the like I I heard a great explanation that, um, you know, Wall Street went short on GameStop. So retail investors just took the other side of the bet. And that's what it all comes down to. Uh, When you think about it, the the same mechanism that drove GameStop up to $400 a share is the same mechanism that drives every stock up or down. It's the same mechanism. It's a giant casino of people making bets about what something is going to be worth in the future. And so in reality, you know, as much as the financial institution might want, uh, might want to, you know, view this as a weird or strange phenomenon, what's happening really is that how the system functions is just sort of getting shown publicly, very nakedly, and it's embarrassing. And because they um, know that they kind of control the levers and that it's a small community of people who kind of follow these general norms, um, they've been able to kind of make it function reasonably for themselves for a while. Occasionally we have 2008, you know, but right. Like when the retail investors got involved, it, it kind of like nakedly shows how the thing actually functions, which is embarrassing, frankly. That's really interesting. So there definitely is a way in which these positive feedback loops and how destructive they can be, can be a good thing in, you know, dismantling, dismantling the powers that be 
or even just in this case, revealing kind of the sham of it all. Yeah, I mean, in, in the in the story of the Emperor's New Clothes, you know, where Great example. it only yeah. takes the one little boy to point out the Emperor's not wearing clothes, that suddenly he creates a positive feedback loop where people are able to then feel accepted enough to amplify his message. And so there is this, um, you know, there is this element of uh, how positive feedback loops can disrupt. And they can disrupt by kind of mocking or openly showing the hypocritical or dysfunctional nature of something uh, for what it is. You know, and it's not, that's not a guarantee either with positive feedback loops, no matter how, you know, to use the word again, positive the the intentions are of the people that are trying to, of the, you know, the iterant uh, ideologues, as it were, within that community. I, I'm thinking, and we've been talking about this basically since the beginning of last year, right? I've been mentioning over and over again how I think that a lot of the stuff that's happened during the coronavirus epidemic and the way that people have reacted to it has had a lot of good effects on people, even though they have been technically negative effects, right? In the sense that people have kind of, you know, like we've realized that our leaders are inept at best, right? In in many cases, right? Not That's not a general statement. I'm saying that many of our leaders are inept at best, right? Um, that we've placed our trust in some really bad characters and that we're in a world of hurt, for a lot of reasons, right? In ways that other countries maybe aren't. And that's, I mean, that's terrible. That's a, a, that's a really bad place to be in. But the good part is that we actually are able to recognize it for the first time and, you know, for many people for the first time, you know? Yeah, uh, it is. The relationship between a positive feedback loop and a crisis is not identical, but they can have very similar functions where I, I mean, when, if you want to understand what a system's problems is, throw a crisis at it and see what happens. Um, and we talked about this. I mean, in China, you can build a hospital in seven days. Um, and in the U.S., it may never happen. But in the U.S., right. Clubhouse can become a thing in le- in like less than nine months. And in China, it gets banned the moment that it, it enters their country. So, like, these are the ups and downs. Like, okay, do you... Like we as a nation have decided that we would rather have, um, you know, raging uncontrolled pandemics and clubhouse and China has decided they would, they can go without clubhouse and they would rather control pandemics and get right back to work after a quarter. Yeah. I mean, put in those ways, it, it it's not a good case for America right now, but I, st- I, mean, I, I believe that living in a more diverse society is better. <laughs> I'm committed to I'm committed to the idea of diversity and, you know, the beautiful things. I mean, I think that Clubhouse is a good example, but I think there are also a lot other examples of disruptive technologies like Clubhouse or like any number, right, that make living in a diverse society pretty great. Um, and it's not one or the other two. I think we could have just been better at COVID in general. So... Okay, so enough fooling around. What are what are we going to be chatting about this episode, Matthew? Well, Tyler, um, I don't know. Why don't you introduce us? All right, fair enough. So we'll be talking about uh, something that has I've been working on for a little bit. So I, I've I've chatted about this in the past uh, quite a few times. Um, 
in our past episodes, this idea of like otherness and like the strategies that we use to get over this pro the problem of other people is how I like to frame it. And so we thought well, we might as well like have like a full conversation about like what exactly that is that we're that I'm talking about there. And in particular, we're, we're going to be bringing up the existentialists, um, uh, like Heidegger, Kierkegaard, and the others. And yeah, so we wanted to like bring that conversation to you guys and like have an interesting dialogue that will actually be relating to a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about um, surrounding the existentialists. I wanted to lead off with, there's this problem in analytic philosophy called the problem of other minds. And in the problem of the other minds, it's a question of how do I know other minds exist? And I love how like nerdy pencil pusher that question is, because the real question is, how do I live my life with, if other minds exist, like, and they're like, Oh, how do I know other minds exist? It's like, no, 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 your body senses that there are others like the anxiety that is produced in you by the presence of another person is all the evidence you need. And in fact, that's a much deeper problem of how do I live with this anxiety? How do I interact with this other being who's not me and I can't control them? Like that's Interesting. a much better problem. And that's a very existential uh, response, I think. <laughs> if it, it, it actually like illuminates like my love of the existentialists, because they're like, can we stop? Like they're kind of like a lot of them look at the analytics and they're like, can we just please like stop these like massive, massive conceptual questions? And can we talk about like you know the, the value of like Levinas, for example, Manuel Levinas is he's like, let's just talk about like what the regular person is experiencing, right? Let's like get rid of these totalities and let's talk about like what the regular lived experience of the person is. Um, and that's precisely what you just brought up, right? Like the fact that you are feeling anxiety because of the, or the fact that you're even asking the question in many ways reveals that there is, there are others. Yeah. It's this much more phenomenological experience where Levinas says, okay, I never encounter other minds. I right. encounter faces. And he's mm -hmm. doing a phenomenology of looking at the face of what happens when I see another person's face. And what is that experience of looking into their eyes and there's a wall there. There's like a depth there that I can never penetrate, but they're looking back at me. And it's this experience of like, there's something else looking back at me. And what do I do with that? Right. He, and, and this is where the strategies come in, right? Um, Levinas talks about how, cause his whole thing is like anti-totalities. Cause like, he's like, you know, morality or ethics is like first philosophy. And so as a first philosophy, and so he's like anti any of these, you know, especially like on the religious side, he's against any of these ideas that are going to be like totalitizing the experience or like uh, totalities as like a, a, a fully encompassing philosophical idea, right? That kind of like touches on every part of the lived experience. Because he says that like what that does, when, especially in reaction to the other or another person, is it does what he calls the reduction of the other to the same, uh, which I interpret as like he's, so he's saying when I look at another person, I essentially, I, I look at that person and then I, I invoke a strategy to basically make that person myself, right? I, I reduce the other to the same to, you know, some sort of like totality of myself. Does that make sense? Am I saying yeah, that correct? Because you can only control or understand something that is familiar to you. And so what's familiar, but the same yourself. Of course, there's also the illusion that we are familiar with ourselves um, or identical right. with ourselves. That's a huge assumption. 
but it's kind of a common human assumption that we walk around with. And, and it is a practical assumption. It also and, brings up this idea that Heidegger has, right, of uh, everyone is the other and no one is himself, I think, if I'm remembering that correctly. Um, kind yeah, of Paul, how... Sorry, go sorry. ahead. I was saying Paul Ricoeur has a book called Oneself as Another, and he, he works on hermeneutics. Mm. Oh, interesting. So, oh, I, I guess I didn't think of the hermeneutical, but I mean, that's, you know... Heidegger's great there too. So, you know, I kind of see like uh, Levinas and Heidegger are kind of like pointing out opposite problems there, right? Like everyone is the other, no one is himself. And this idea of the reduction of the other to the same are both pointing out, I think that there might be a sense in which those two things don't have any sort of consistency between the two of them. Uh, but I actually think that there is because they're kind of like talking about two opposite sides of the same coin, right? And that is what we've mentioned in previous episodes, which is the strategy in dealing with the other, right? One is this attempt to like make the other oneself and the other is kind of holds that same sort of, I, I guess like what I see in Heidegger and I want to get your thoughts on this is like this, I, what you mentioned earlier, which is, the assumption of of the self right one is the assumption of the other and the other and heidegger is the assumption of the self does that make sense yeah i love playing levinas and heidegger off in this way because as you're saying levinas is uh, trying to fight against the temptation to reduce the other to the same something that we could control something familiar that would relieve the anxiety but heidegger is he's talking about that same problem but at the personal level of dealing with your own self and so he's like, you have a tendency to want to reduce yourself to an object, to something familiar, because being a self is really scary because it implies freedom. So right. he's talking about, you know, like uh, the they self, the crowd. Mm -hmm. and how To lose tempted, yourself in the they. Exactly. We're super tempted to get lost in the crowd and basically totally objectify ourselves because that's much more familiar and it, it doesn't demand as much of us to be an individual. Right. Yeah. And he, this is kind of like the project of all of those guys, right? Satra as well uh, does this, right? When he talks, he has that example of the waiter who acts in bad faith, right? Uh, I, th I think that they're like, like Kierkegaard and Levinas, I see it in one camp where they're kind of talking about like the individual's like action towards the other or their like action outwards and Satra and Heidegger are talking about how one is constantly looking to abdicate the individualism, right? The individual is trying to abdicate itself into the crowd or into the other, right? Yeah. I think we can read all of this through the lens of human beings, fear, responsibility. Precisely. And this is, so, okay, and just as a history for our listeners as well, there's, I got into the existentialists through Kierkegaard, and, um, you know, obviously that's um, kind of where it all got started. Um, in his, because, but one thing, I, you know, I read like Fear and Trembling, and something that was just so uh, stark, something that like really jumped out to me in that book is how much he emphasizes personal responsibility and like the moral dimension. And then 
I began reading Levinas and like, that's his whole thing, right? He's like, he's like, let's stop having like these, these conversations about like philosophical totalities, right? Like he lets pass away these like more religious dogmatic ideas. And let's talk about morality as a first philosophy, right? Like talk about morality first and Heidegger and Sartre. That's like, I mean, that resonates strongly with them as well. This like moral dimension, this idea of like making real choices as an individual and what it means to make an authentic choice, I see that as like the cent as a as a central aspect of like the existentialist project. Yeah, I I, I think that there's oh, how do I put it? There's this idea that there it, there's this idea that in favor of Christianity that human beings why would they want to believe that there is some God out there who is directing everything and that you know ultimately. They don't make any choice outside of him and his plan, you know, and that this God is going to hold me responsible for all of my actions and that I, you know, only through him do I have access to full truth. Um, but if you stop and think about it, that idea is actually super amenable to the human spirit because the human spirit is like, right. no, no, no. I want to push the responsibility for my choices onto somebody else who has perfect knowledge. And, right. you know, when they tell me what to do. I can just do it and that's great. So I don't have to, um, I don't have to battle with the indeterminacy of a finite choice or of having to make a judgment with imperfect knowledge. Um, right. I don't have to take responsibility for my choices, uh, outside of the, you know, in, uh, in the human reality of, uh, just not knowing enough. Right. Yeah, that's a really great point. Uh, um, it brings to mind, you know, the religious dimension of existentialism, which I've always really appreciated. Even, you know, in the Judaic side, you know, uh, Lev Emmanuel Levinas is a great example of this. But also, even though he didn't write a whole lot on theology, Martin Buber as well in his uh, book, I and Thou, is kind of a game changer. Um, but I think that this is something that Kierkegaard really hits as well as a Christian, too. I think he goes a level above uh, what uh, the Jewish thinkers are doing here, primarily because of the element of Jesus Christ, right? But to your point more specifically, uh, this is his entire point about Abraham, right? What he calls the silent suffering of Father Abraham, right? There's like the sense in which to make an authentic individual choice, it requires this silence because an inauthentic choice is one which is like broadcasted, which which becomes like externalized, and that to, for example, to put it in my language, right, for the authentic master, in order to make a, re a real authentic choice, there is a mystery in the choice itself, right? The, the, the choice is mysterious. And additionally, so I took this idea from Kierkegaard and I'm like, well, like, does this align with like what we would find in like the New Testament? Because that's a great idea. And I think that it does, right? Like, I think that like, this is where I would cr take your criticism of Christians. And it is an accurate, uh, criticism i think of that idea i think it's it's more of like a a uh a human and religious problem because this is something that jesus himself is combating in say um the sermon on the mount right and the sermon on the mount is a perfect example because it's oftentimes used as this you know like system of kind of like uh indeterminate grace like this very kind of like uh, ethereal uh, love. There's just kind of like this nice, you know, like in episode one, the sentimentalized idea of grace, especially when you read like blessed is the poor, blessed is the meek, right? 
But the Sermon on the Mount really has all of its teeth in Matthew's antitheses, right? Where Jesus uses the formula, you have heard it said blank, and then he goes, but I tell you that blank. So a great example of this would be the comments on adultery, um, which I think are phenomenal, where he says, you have heard it said that if a man sleeps with another man's wife, he has committed adultery, but I tell you, and then he switches the language. He says, I tell you, if you look to a woman with lust in your heart, you have already committed adultery in your heart, right? Or you've already committed adultery with her. So he's like taking that like act and he's saying, okay, so not only is it like you're already sinning A, if it's with any woman, and B, you don't even have to commit the act with her anymore. Like if you were acting in your mind, essentially, you've already done it, right? It already counts as the sin. And I think that this is, this becomes really obvious when you look at like the Pharisees as because they use kind of their their outward acceptance and observation of the law as actually as a way to abdicate their personal moral responsibility. And Jesus is like super intent on this, like on this very difficult, um, uh, this, this very difficult, like pursuit of individual personal responsibility. Does all of that make sense? Yeah. I think that at the core of Christian discipleship is this assumption of responsibility for one's choices and right. I think I really think about the Pharisees where Jesus accuses them of tithing all of the like proper ratios of herbs and stuff, but then they like, neglect to take care of their parents and the right. law for the Pharisees becomes a way to absolve themselves and to abdicate their responsibility because they're just by the letter following the will of an other, some cosmic other who has given them this law and they can just follow it. And if they follow it, then they're okay. This is precisely what is happening in great point. This is, this is exactly what is happening in the scene between the Pharisee and the tax collector, where the Pharisee says, Lord, thank you that I am not like this tax collector here. Right. And he's praying out loud and he's like, you know, I, you know, give to the poor, I tithe, well, blah, 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 blah. And then the tax collector is beating his chest saying, you know, have mercy upon me, a sinner, Lord, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Right now known as the sinner's prayer, actually, in uh, very common in, like, especially Eastern Orthodox um, pietism. Okay, so I think that's a great example to extend your point, uh, because what is interesting is that it's not clear that the Pharisees, it, I mean, it seems pretty clear that the Pharisee would have been considered a righteous man, actually, right? Like, the Pharisee isn't, all the things that he's listing are great things, that the, the religious person should do, right? And I think that moral people should, especially if they're religious, should pursue, right? The difficulty is that he is using that as a way to, as you're saying, to abdicate personal responsibility. And the tax collector is traditionally viewed, especially in New Testament literature and literature of that time, is, is traditionally seen as a predator, as a parasite, right? So he is the one who is unrighteous, and yet he still refuses to abdicate his responsibility, right? And he claims responsibility unto himself, right? Um, there's also maybe something interesting there about the limitation of his language, how simple his language is in uh, in opposition to the florid kind of furnitureized like language of the Pharisee. But I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that the, the, the Pharisee's relationship of himself to himself is kind of the main problem here. 
Yes. Is it, like it's not an honest relationship about like why he does things because he's making decisions based on enjoyment on what he enjoys. Right. He, he's deriving enjoyment from one, the kind of person that those acts make him feel like, and also the enjoyment that he derives from having it register with the social other that he has performed those acts. And this is why Jesus says, you know, they have received their reward. What have they received? They've received the enjoyment of being recognized by the other. But that's the extent of it. That's the extent of their enjoyment. They've already received it. It's over and done. Interesting. Oh, wow. See, I've never, I've never thought about that, right? So then there's also all these ideas of we can bring in of you know, the long-term demand, the long-term implications of, uh, personal responsibility and making real choices, right? How, you know, or, or maybe a better way to ask that is what's the skin in the game, you know, for making moral choices and what is the, what is the gift or the end result of abdicating your responsibility? Because it's not like, uh, I, I think it would be, you know, unfair to say that people that, work very hard to abdicate their responsibility or simply doing it because they're, you know, they're lazy or whatever. I think that, you know, there's a real cost benefit there. Um, you know, like there are other options and the benefits are probably pretty great in the short term, you know? Yeah. There's, there's a lot of enjoyment to be had in experiencing oneself as the agent of some absolute other. Right. I mean, that's that's the enjoyment of the terrorist. That's the enjoyment of the uh, the spy. That's the enjoyment of the the preacher. That's the enjoyment of um, oh, there's, there's there's that's the enjoyment of the uh, the person who leads a religious ceremony or who leads a political ceremony. There's this endless enjoyment that human beings derive from being able to externalize themselves from themselves and to disappear into some role into some right. special um, ritual that they get to enact that is able to disavow themselves. They find a lot of freedom and enjoyment in that. Yeah. And I think you bring up a good point because I think that that reveals that the improper way to classify that is to say that it is not a choice. Because it is a choice. They are making choices. And this is why the existentialists favor the language of authentic choices, right? Um, and I think that choices in general, I think the reason for that is choices in general create antagonisms and antitheses, right? So anytime that you're making a choice, you're creating some sort of friction in, in the world. And the reason why it's important for people to abdicate their responsibility in those choices is to avoid that friction and to avoid that antagonism. Whereas to make an authentic choice is to recognize that it will, you know, it, it, and by antagonisms, I mean choosing between one thing or another, right? Like in order to choose, you know, you got married as a result, right? We, I mentioned this to you earlier, right? In order to get married or be in a relationship with someone, you have to say, I'm going to get married to you and not to anyone else, right? I've decided to link myself only with you and not with any of the other people that I know, right? An authentic choice is one that recognizes that friction, that you're making a, a serious decision for the rest that will influence the rest of your life, you know? Yeah, we've talked about this before. I think one of the core components 
of an authentic choice is a clear-eyed assessment of what you're giving up. Uh, like, what's yes. the sacrifice that's taking place in this? And sometimes you can't know the full extent, but I think that more often than not, we just haven't asked ourselves the question. I think that most suffering in life is due to um, wanting the benefit of a situation and not wanting the downside at the same time because we haven't accurately assessed what is the cost. You know, like I, I sit at the, I sit at the computer a lot for my job and my interests, which has its costs. My, my legs get tight. I need to stretch. I need to get up and be active, uh, more sedentary lifestyle. I, I burn fewer calories, you know, but then I might find myself like, why am I not as thin as I used to be, you know, and then and start to feel down. It's like, no, no, you made this choice. Like that's, that's the cost. Like you are sedentary and don't work out as much as you need to. Like, like you need to be honest with yourself that where you're at is exactly where one would expect one to be at with the decisions you've made. And so um, I think that like stopping and taking a moment to think through what are the costs that I'm actually paying is a way to avoid suffering down the road. And it's also a way to motivate yourself because at the same time as you take account of the costs, you can also take account of the benefits. You can say, why am right. I giving up these things? Okay, this is why. And then ask yourself, is this a good deal? Do I want to continue to make this trade? And I think that fundamentally it's like one of the things the ex existentialists are about is continually reassessing the deal that you've made. Because so you've made a deal, you've cut a deal with yourself with society, with your family, you've cut a deal because you're giving something up to get something back. And you need to stop and ask yourself, is what I'm giving up worth what I'm getting back? And can I live with myself? And can I sign my name on that deal again and again? And maybe today I've decided that deal doesn't work for me anymore. Yeah, I think that, wow, that's a really good point. Um, putting it in those terms is like also very, um, it's it's so practical, you know, um, which is, you know, arguably pretty rare for uh, philosophy. Uh, and so I always appreciate it. Um, I guess where I would attack that, because I agree with you, where, where I would attack that is this issue of uh, like the convert mentality I would say the convert mentality is the opposite of that, right? It's the convert mentality is essentially like, I, I would feel the difference is oftentimes where we kind of f try and search for togetherness and community, which brings in this other idea of the otherness, right? Um, so in addition to making clear cohesive choices, you also can't make choices that turn you into a convert, just like some mindless zealot, right? Um, because the mindless zealot is kind of breaking a lot of the aforementioned um, structures of authentic choices in that it is externalized ultimately, right? The convert is always trying to like convert other people to, hit, you know, you meet anyone who's like, you know, as Anglicans, you meet anyone who has just recently become Anglican or someone who's just like become Roman Catholic and they are usually, it's extremely loud, right? Everyone knows about it in a, you know, 500 mile radius, uh, even more with the with social media, right? So the choice immediately becomes externalized and you actually end up losing the mystery. And 
of of the choice. And this goes back to my initial point. What you're talking about, while it sounds extremely practical, is from the outsider looking in is is very mysterious. It's silent, right? This sort of this sort of uh, commitment to making choices is not something that relies upon some sort of outsider perspective or some sort of like um, affirmation from outside of yourself, right? Because ultimately the choice is in you and no one else. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I love that about you needing affirmation outside of yourself because that's exactly what the convert is doing. The convert has right. paid an extremely high switching cost. They switched from one deal that had a lot of like it had a deep they have a deep sunk cost in that deal. And then they paid a really high switching cost to switch to something new. And so now they have to really work hard to justify to themselves that high switching cost. And part of how they do that is convincing others to perform the same act so that they feel more justified. Like, oh, this was a good idea. Other people see the, see, um, the value in it as well. And also uh, through a continual need to assure themselves that they made the right call. So this is not to say at all that we disparage or we would want to disparage community or togetherness, right? And this is, I think, a problem that I find in some maybe ramifications of existentialist thought or some existentialists is they kind of want to remove the problem. They want to like take the individual away from the community and kind of isolate the individual. And I, I just like, first off, I don't think that that's possible. Like, I don't think that, that exists, you know, like it's not a real thing. Like we're, you know, we're extremely social creatures, right? And we're biologically social, right? So the idea that somehow we could escape that is pretty ridiculous to me. But I think that what we learn from the existentialists, you know, is not to disparage community or disparage other people, but to rather recognize the inherent siren song of other people, or rather recognize the dangers of too freely giving up or uh, too freely or um, less critically involving yourself in a community or involving yourself in other people, right? The value of the existentialists, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but my point is that the value of the existentialists is to retain your individuality through making authentic choices that are uh, unassailable, right? I think that there's something about the existentialist that leads to this idea of becoming an authentic master, right? And I really appreciate the uh, early, you know, like first to fifth century Christian language here, when they talk about Jesus as the master, right? They would talk about Jesus and they would say, you must follow the master, right? Become masters yourselves. And, you know, there's some, uh, some early theologians, like first and second century theologians that would talk about how God became man so that man could become gods, right? This idea of becoming just like God to become a master yourself. Um, and it's interesting that is, a, I think that that's a great kind of like tool to understand what I'm talking about here because God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? He willingly involved himself in other people. But I would say that the most effective way to willingly involve yourself in other people is to become an authentic master yourself. What do you think about that? Mm. Yeah, so, so Nietzsche has this section where he talks about how he believes that someday there will be a society so strong that they won't punish criminals. And the reason will be because they are so sure and confident of themselves and unassailable in their position 
that criminals won't even be able to hurt them. Hmm. And so there's this idea of the master kind of has an overabundance that they can give away such that like um, the attacks of petty and small people full of hatred, they don't, they, they can't hurt them. They can't phase them. And it's not this callous imperviousness where you don't care about other people, but it's the idea of having such an overflow that other people can't take it away. So this is like in Zarathustra, Nietzsche talks a lot about how um, Zarathustra is, he's overfull and he needs to come down the mountain and empty himself out to others or how he's, he's so full of honey or he's drunk. And these, these images keep describing the state of a person who has such an abundance that they can give to others freely because they have no lack themselves. That's really interesting. I always appreciate Nietzsche here, right? Um, and I think that he's right. Uh, I think that there, and this is the aforementioned danger that I mentioned in some existentialist thought. I think this is particularly clear in Heidegger, although I don't think that listen i'm not a, a great heidegger i'm not exactly like an amazing heidegger scholar so you know take this with a grain of salt but i like i have my doubts that his conclusions here are consistent with his arguments where i think that he's like you know because he has this whole like primacy on like the individual infusing his life with meaning basically through like something akin to like force of will right um and this is common for the existentialists right i mean this is kierkegaard as well uh but I think that leads to a lot of people becoming like these rocks or islands unto themselves where like we just like so overemphasize this like the mystery of authentic choices and the silent suffering of Father Abraham that like Father Abraham, we take ourselves up to some remote mountain and we never leave, right? I think the lesson in Nietzsche here is that Actually, the purpose of becoming someone who is able to make authentic choices, who does not abdicate responsibility, is that it makes you strong enough to help others. That it is actually something built upon a strict foundation of love for the other, right? That if you, and this is what I love about Levinas, is that if you love other people, you will refuse the siren song that calls you to reduce them to yourself or reduce others to the same, right? Because for Levinas, he views that as an ethical evil, right? He views it as a moral wrong. Um, and so this idea of making authentic choices allows the individual to refuse that opportunity and to instead attempt, even impartially, to attempt to view another person as another person. I, I love here the line from Scripture that perfect love casts out all fear. I think right. that love, when it meets the other it, it meets the other with a, a strength, just a, a desire for their good that overcomes any of the fear and anxiety that could come out of that um, encounter. Mm. And I think that it doesn't, it can't completely do away with the, I don't know if I'm making the right call here, the um, essential indeterminacy of the rightness of your choice. But if you can meet otherness with love, then you can you can begin you can overcome fear you can cast it out and say I'm not going to let fear control how I approach this situation. Right. Yeah. There's there's a 
I would say it's like a strength through suffering, right? And you mentioned this at the very, very beginning that the, you know, the, um, the reason why abdicating your responsibility is so tempting is because it gives you a f certain freedom from suffering, right? And that you mentioned like this indeterminacy of choices and the existentialists are here as well, right? Like Levinas talks about how like there's like this uh, vibration or he talks about it as like this, this shock or restlessness that accompanies the encounter with the other, right? Um, and I think that being, or rather walking in love, it it doesn't necessarily get rid of that problem, right? It, and it, it's not interested in getting rid of that problem necessarily, right? It's interested instead of in, in enduring and shouldering that suffering and walking with that suffering, right? I think that, I, and I've brought this up in the past, uh, I think in two episodes already, I've talked about kind of this difference that I make between the you know hardcore right wing and the hardcore left wing problem of otherness, right? Especially around things like racism and race, uh, which I think is an appropriate thing to bring up considering our political uh, context right now. Both say you know the racist and the you know bourgeois liberal are attempting to solve the same problem, which is the fact that black people are different than the white person. That's, I mean, that's essentially the problem, right? And the racist gets over that problem, that shock of the encounter with the other, with something that, it, with a person that is so much different than him or herself, that he attempts to destroy it, right? In 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 obvious ways and subtle ways, right? Through, you know, the exercising of institutionalized racism, yada yada yada, right? But the, you know, the bourgeois sentimentalized liberal is actually committing the same problem, because you know, in, in that sense, the liberal is trying to pretend like the problem doesn't exist, but the problem is the, well, it does exist, right? Like the, the encounter with the other is always full of conflict, right? It's always full of the problems of the other person precisely because the other person is not yourself, right? And so neither one of them actually solve the problem precisely because they believe that the problem needs to be solved, right? The problem of like otherness in general, right? Um, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't solve the problem of racism. That's, I'm making a different point than that. Right. Yes, I understand. Right. I, I, I think your point is that you can win the game by opting out of the game. Opting out of the game. Yeah. There's a third option that is better. And I think that that third option is to suffer, right? Like the only way that, and, and, you know, to be, you know, cards on the table, I am not 100% on this, on this idea, but it's something that I'm working on. I, I just don't think that, well, obviously I don't think that, you know, destroying the problem or pretending the problem doesn't exist are first off good or loving. And I think that in order to love others, you have to be involved with them and you have to suffer, you know, like there are a bunch of like philosophers that talk about what it means to like love people. You know, like Nietzsche says that when you're afraid, you're, or I believe it's Nietzsche, he says when you're further away from people, you're able to be better friends with them because you're able to like give them grace and stuff like that. Um, I, I might be misquoting him. But let's just take that idea. Uh, let's assume that idea. That idea is stupid. Uh, because, of course, when you're far away from people and you're not connected to their problems and you're not con connected to their dysfunctions, of course you're able to give them more grace, right? But, like, if you are doing life with that other person, you are going to be embroiled in all of their drama, right? 
which means that grace is actually something far greater and far more powerful than simply distance, right? Um, and this is, I think, what we should commit ourselves more to is this idea of like really like wrestling with other people, you know, like Jacob wrestling with the angel. I think that is a better image of what it means to relate to other people than just like kind of like this washing away of the problem. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that human beings have fundamentally for millennia and haven't figured out the answer. They, they're they struggling with the question of how to make authentic collective decisions. Right. Because if I as an individual sort of am, am under this obligation to make authentic decisions and we want to solve the problem of an authentic community, which is a community of others, then the idea of a, of an authentic community relies on the idea that there is the possibility of an authentic communal decision. And so decision-making processes are actually some of the most difficult, fraught, um, but truly valuable endeavors that we can engage in is hmm. having conversation, working through things, negotiating, and as a group, coming up with a decision together that is authentic. And I think that that's perhaps the most difficult task human beings ever engage in is the task of attempting to make an authentic group decision. And I think that, that problem is made even worse in globalized society, right? When there are so many disparate, and we get into this a little bit in our episode on bureaucracy, right? Episode two, where the problem is made extremely difficult because there are so many different societies and so many different cultures in our one globalized society. Yeah. It's just like, it's already difficult for human beings, even within like a family structure or right. a tribe. Mm -hmm. But if you, if you fill a society with so many different people, you just make the problem so much worse, uh, which obviously means that um, the possibility of like the beauty of succeeding is so much greater, but you've ratcheted up the difficulty so far. Yeah. Like you haven't actually, like in reality, it's a lot easier to live in a society where a couple people make the decisions. A lot of people might not like the general atmosphere and the outcome, but it requires a lot less from you. But in a society right. that makes collective decisions together and attempts to make those authentically, a lot is required of you a lot of personal responsibility for your own choices and how you engage with others. And the group holds itself to a higher standard. Yeah. And this is, I think what I, I like that a lot. I think this is what I'm getting at when I talk about undergoing the suffering of an authentic meeting. Like, and, and we talked about this uh, last weekend um, when we were up in Portland, how like there's the, like an authentic meeting is not necessarily like say the authentic meeting between two people is not real. Like, uh, or I don't, I don't know if you want to put that in a better, in a better way. Right. You were talking about the psychoanalysts and how this idea that a lot of the existentialists have of like some sort of like magical, like Martin Buber has this idea of like this mass, some sort of like transcendent meeting between two others together. Right. I, I think that, what is obviously missing in that idea is this idea of suffering for one another, right? Um, I think that it's a better uh, bet to say an authentic meeting is not possible, but 
what two others can do is they can say that we agree that we cannot know each other as we know ourselves, which is obvious because we cannot, right? Or we can only understand each other as others. So I understand you as another, and you understand me as another. And we basically create an agreement where we say we will walk forward in trust and we will decide to shoulder each other's burdens and suffer for one another, right? And I think this is essentially what happens in the institution of marriage, right? Two people decide to form a deal and they say, well, like we both suck and we know we're going to terrorize each other, but this is a good bet for our future to shoulder each other's burdens and to suffer for one another. What do you think about that? I think that, uh, yes, I, I totally agree with you that, that like Martin Buber's I thou distinction where like somehow this, the subject could overcome this relationship to an object is a fantasy that you will never be anything more than an object to me ever. Right. Like it's not possible because you are not me. We are not identical. Therefore you can only ever be an object of my perception. And, and I have to have a relationship with you where you're not me. And so, but what I think it's missed is the thing that we actually do share which is suffering, like you say. And the way that psychoanalysis talks about this is lack. Right. We I'm so happy you brought this up. share in lack. And so there is actually something that we have in common. There is actually what is common ground, but it is our lack as selves, is that we are not enough, is that we, requ- we, need, we require grace. We need grace. And so that we... We as subjects, like if you meet any person on the street, you don't need to know their story, but you know that they are lacking. Right. They lack one because they are a subject who is is uh, severed in language. Like they are, they are torn within themselves because of uh, they experience themselves um, consciously. There's a gap between their perception of themselves and who they are. They're they're torn internally between the self and the, the I. So they are, there's a gap there. And then the, there's endless things that flow from that lack. They're, they're desiring, they're needing, their mistakes, their dysfunctions, their, their failures, their, their loves, all of these things flow from their lack. And we all share that lack. And so when I, when I meet somebody, I can count on that lack being true about them. And that is a place, ironically, we can begin to build. It is ironic how in our lack, the things that would be a wound to us in any other context is actually the building is the foundation by which we build togetherness in society. I want to leave it there because I think that this idea of lack, especially in the psychoanalyst, and I'm really happy that you brought it up because I I know you mentioned it and I was just like waiting for you to bring it back up again because I love the idea. But I think that we'll leave that until next episode and kind of readdress that and go a little bit more in detail um, on on all of that, like that second dimension, kind of extending the existentialist idea into the idea of psychology, I think would be really, really interesting. I mean, the existentialists really are early psychologists. Right. Yeah. This is hundred percent. Like this is the way in which we understand Kierkegaard, for example, right. Is he's doing a work of psychology and like most of his philosophy, uh, which I love. So, 
Um, well, Matthew, thank you so much for your time. I thought this was excellent. I always love our conversations. Yeah, this has been great. I feel like we've both been kind of working on this for, for a while and, um, it's all kind of coming out. And <laughs> I think even our words, we're stumbling and looking for words totally. and trying to express what's going on. And I expect that this is just the beginning of what we're going to be talking about, but I'm really Absolutely. excited about this direction. And I feel like over these past few years, I've gained so much more clarity about what it's like to be human and kind of the, the temptations and weaknesses that I'm so prone to. Um, but it hasn't made me feel more pessimistic. No. And that's the beautiful thing is I, I you know, I, I'm kind of worried that anyone listening to us will hear us as preachers or, uh, you know, pundits, but I, you know, I'm, the only reason I bring any of this up is because of my own frailty. You know, like I have recognized in myself my desire to abdicate my responsibility and to not make authentic choices. And that is wrong to me, but it is who I am, you know? And so I think that this is a problem that, uh, you know, this is why I emphasize not, you know, needlessly judging other people or like making some sort of banal moralistic argument against, you know, abdicating choice. Like I think that it's a real problem that most all that all people suffer from. But I think that together by shouldering each other's suffering, we can do better and we can make more authentic choices. Let's make more authentic choices together, brother. Dude, absolutely. Love you, man. Blessings. You love you too. Bye. Bye.